Thanks, guys. Just a little uh, side note. We just sang this cool song from Handel's Messiah. Uh, the last couple of years, my family and I have been kind of studying Handel's Messiah because it's classical music, so we didn't really get that on an easy listening. You know, just like an easy listen through. I don't quite understand it, but there's a great book you can get by Cindy Rollins called Hallelujah. Um, it's kind of a devotional book where you have little, it'll have like you listen to a few parts of it and then it has some devotional comments and some explanations of how the music works. So anyway, recommend that to you if you're like me and don't really always understand classical music but would like to grow in that area. It's a kind of a great classic of uh, Christian musical history. So that was really cool to get to sing part of it right there. Um, but there's a whole lot more to it as well. So I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, I have a little business update for you. The business update, oh, my battery cover is coming off. Business update is this. If you look on the back of the bulletin, you see our financial information for the church. We print that there. Uh, We believe that giving is a part of worship, um, but that it's a natural response to God giving to us in the gospel. So we don't twist your arm or try to guilt you into giving. We just try to communicate what our needs are to accomplish the mission that God has called us to as a church. I give you opportunities to give in response to that. We have giving boxes back in the back, and we have online ways to give as well. Um, And our giving has done pretty well for the year. We've been running like 97% of what we would like to be bringing in, right? And when not all the money comes in, we try to reduce spending to match that so we don't go into the hole. Um, but it says general giving for November, 57655 uh, That was actually a typo. We had a, just a miscommunication with our bookkeeper. He sent us new information after we'd already printed the bulletin. It was actually 90000 for November. So give yourselves a hand, and I just want to thank you for your generosity. Um, so the giving was really good for November. Um, that still puts us at like 98% roughly for the year. So I would just say uh, often in December we catch up when we've been a little behind. And I want to encourage you as you are able, as God has been generous to you, to be generous. If you can partner with us in ministry, we appreciate that. Again, uh, we don't think you're going to get any special favors with us or with God by giving. But we, we do believe in what we're doing and would love for you to join us by giving financially as you're able to do that. So continue that through December. It's the last month of our financial year. All right, we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. Uh, We're in this Advent series where we kind of pause and slow down to ponder just the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder of Advent. Advent means the arrival of a notable person or event. And so Advent is a fancy way of saying Christmas, okay? So what we're saying is we're kind of slowing down and just trying to enjoy it and soak it up. We focus on different themes of what the birth of Jesus brings into our life and into the history of the church. We've got hope that Mari led us through last week. I want to thank Mari. did a great job kind of introducing that concept of the longing and the hope. Saw the life of Anna and Simeon waiting for Jesus to be born. This week, we're going to look at love. Um, Next week, it'll be joy with Stephen Watson. The week after that, peace. And then the week after that, we will celebrate Christmas together. The way we're going to do Christmas is we're going to have four services. We're going to have two on Sunday, which is Christmas Eve Eve. And then we're going to have two more on Christmas Eve, okay? So you can either come on Christmas Eve Eve or Christmas Eve, either one, but they're all going to be the same services. We'll have Christmas carols and candles and all that stuff spread out over those two days. Um, So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 2 where we will ponder love, love that we have in Jesus. Jesus sends love to us. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn to page 857. In the black Bibles that you'll see into the chairs, you can grab one of those, 857. It's Luke chapter 2. Last week, Mari looked at the end of Luke chapter 2. I'm now backing up, and I'm going to look at the beginning. It's just the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, And I want to kind of frame it in a couple of ways. First of all, I want to frame it with um, some language we get from the little letter of 1 John at the end of the Bible. It's a little letter by the Apostle John. And there he says that we see God's love in this, that he sent his son. 
And so one of the ways that we see that God loves us is that he sent his son for us. Another famous verse is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. And so we often frame that thinking through the lens of the gospel and our response to the good news that Jesus died for us on the cross. We'll look at these details some more. But we also know that there's good news in the life of Jesus, the life he lived for us. And we can see some specifics of God's love even in the details of the birth stories. We have these stories of how did God come after us? How did he send love into the world? We have some interesting, quirky little details in the birth story that we'll read here in Luke chapter 2. And of course, there are other details we read in other gospels like in Matthew as well. Um, I want to kind of set it up in another way now before I read the text. And that is, imagine that you are in a superhero movie. Imagine that you are in a superhero movie. You need to be rescued and someone brings in a little baby in a feeding trough, boom, and that's your superhero, right? That, that would be an unexpected superhero. That would not be the way you would expect to be rescued, right? Like you're expecting Superman to swoop in or Iron Man to swoop in, and, and it's this little baby. That's kind of what the story is like here. And it's really interesting because it's contrasted with the great emperor, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus actually had people that worked for him as the most powerful man in the world, leader of the Roman Empire. He had people that worked for him writing propaganda to make him look like a superhero, right? So um, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but, but we have a leader right now that thinks very highly of himself, right? We'll just say that. We have a leader in this world that thinks very highly of himself. Imagine if he started like publishing comic books that made him out to be a superhero. Wouldn't that just be kind of weird, right? Um, Augustus did stuff like that. Caesar Augustus did things like that. Julius Caesar did as well. And that's the kind of world that Jesus is born into. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, Uh, in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So she swaddled the little baby Um, And they were there in the manger. There was no room in the inn. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the story, and we pray that you'd continue to make it fresh. Uh, Many of us have heard it many times, but it is an amazing story. And we believe that this is a picture of your love for us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would allow us to see that. I pray for my friends that are here today that have questions, that are skeptical of whether or not we can even believe the story, that you give them eyes to see the truth of who you are and that you do love us. Pray for those of us that believe that already, that you would refresh us, that you would encourage us by your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So again, the, the big idea is that John says, and many other places in the New Testament, that we know God loves us because of Jesus. And I would say we even know God loves us because of Jesus in some of the specifics, right? We know some of the how of how God loves us because of some of the specifics even of this story, quirky little details of the birth of Jesus uh, that we always remember at Christmas time. And so three things I want us to focus on. One is that God's love is historical. Luke gives us historical details. And then also I want us to think about the idea that God's love comes before us. 
There's like this whole movement of God before you and I ever showed up on the scene. His love is at work. It's happening before us, before we ever show up. And then finally, we're going to look at the idea that God's love is sympathetic. His love is sympathetic, and we see that in the life, the birth of Jesus. So first of all, God's love is historical. It's historical. We, we see this in general just in the book of Luke. The book of Luke is a very historical book, just the way it was written. Um, you can contrast different kinds of movies uh, by show of hands. Uh, how many of you like documentaries? Anybody here? Okay, a lot of you like documentaries. Awesome. So you need to read the book of Luke. The book of Luke is the most documentary style of the Gospels. The Gospels all have different style. And as believers, we would say we believe all of them to be historically true, but that's not the same thing as saying a historical writing style. Luke has a much more journalistic and historical style. He goes into great detail. So if you love going deep into the details, Luke is the gospel for you. Matthew references the kind of religious references of the, the Jewish tradition the most, right? So it's the most Jewish emphasis of the gospels. Mark is the most about like action and power, right? So Mark is like the action movie of the gospels. Um, and then John, and the direction, everything kind of lines up very coherent. And so there are different directions, uh, smooth in the direction, everything kind of lines up very coherent. And so there are different director styles, smooth in the direction, everything kind of lines up very coherent. And so there are different director styles, right, different ways of doing photography, different ways of telling a story. We would say all the things that they're talking about are true things that happened. They just had all this material and they could only use so much and so they lined up the material as they saw fit, right? So... Mark, and uh, we mo most of us think that Peter wrote Mark with Mark. They were cousins. Uh, and so they, when they were writing the book of Mark, they were like, let's make it short, and let's get all the exciting stuff, right? So it's just like all the exciting stuff. you got the car chases and the explosions. That's the gospel of Mark, right? Um, and then John, as I said, it's kind of lofty and profound and simple. Uh, it's most kind of like zen. I hope you don't take that in the wrong way. But just, you know, it has that kind of like interesting, almost weird sometimes, but super simple at the same time. Um, and Matthew, as I said, a lot of Jewish connotations. Luke is historical, super historical. He goes into great detail. Ru he wrote Luke and also the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, that's the one that comes after the four Gospels that kind of tell what the Apostles did. And he gives lots of little historical details that people love to nerd out on. If you follow him, he'll, he'll give details like in this certain town, this leader in this place was called a tetrarch. But over here, he was called like chief. And over here, he was called the mayor, right? He just gives little side details, and back in the day, you know, 40s and 50s, skeptical scholars would read that, and they'd be like, oh, well, no one in the, you know, Roman Empire was called a tetrarch. Luke was stupid and didn't know what he was talking about, and then we've discovered more stuff in archaeology and found out, oh, yeah, that's exactly what the ruler was called in that one remote town, right? And so we, we discover things all the time that shows that Luke is really accurate, and everything he says can be trusted, and so I want you to understand that the Gospel of Luke itself is a historical document, and it runs contrary to what our culture would say because our culture has said that there are, there are things of history and science, and they go in this bucket. They go in this, like, objective bucket, right? And it's very serious and sophisticated and academic. And then there's this other bucket of things like feelings and religion and values, and that goes over here. It can't be proven, and you shouldn't try to push that on anyone else, right? And we've separated out these two buckets like they have nothing to do with each other. And Christianity, here, here's the really, I think, awesome thing about Christianity, but it's scary to a lot of people in our culture. Christianity says, no, they go together. They go together. The God of the universe actually came into space and time. And so if you thought that God was going to speak into space and time, how do you think he would do it? 
Well, he would speak into history, right? Like, like if, if he's above space and time, how's he going to connect with us in history? Well, he's going to come actually into history. That, that's how it would work. That, that makes sense. Now, that's exactly the kind of story we see being told here. And it's fascinating because he's, he's working with the details of, of the time and day. Caesar Augustus saying the whole world should be registered. Okay, there's going to be a census, right? Do y'all know, is it, is it census and sensi or is it census and censuses? Do you know, how do you say that? Anybody know? I wasn't sure. Okay. Anyway, there's a census or a registration or something like that. People are being counted, right? Uh, leaders do this kind of thing so they can tax you. That's, that's really why they're doing it. Um, they kind of like to brag on how many people are in their, their regions, but they also want to tax you, and that's a lot of what's happening here. In verse 2, it says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Just a side note, if you want to kind of dive deep in some of the different questions skeptics have, the word first in Greek can also mean before. So translators kind of just have to pick one meaning, and they go with, it was the first registration of Quirinius, but it could just as easily mean this was the registration before the Quirinius registration. It can mean that just as easily, and that helps answer some kind of historical confusions some people have about the details of this text. And he says in verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So we've got history here. The more we dig, the more we see that this history is reliable. But I bring up all of this because there are a lot of scholars that have problems with some of the details of the text. And of course, have problems with the details of many other texts. And what I want to encourage you to do is be careful of kind of the two extremes when evaluating the historical claims of Christianity. I think there are two uh, extremes we can fall into. One is if you were raised in kind of a fundamentalist style of religion, you were taught don't ask any questions, don't think about it, just kind of shut up and obey, right? That's one extreme where you're not allowed to investigate and ask questions. And I would say it's okay to ask questions. This, this book can handle it. God can handle it. It's okay. Ask questions. That helps us to learn. And then there's another uh, extreme we can go to where we basically use our skepticism as an excuse not to believe. Uh, we have a professor that would tell us, well, you know, this is doubtful and, or this, you know, this isn't reliable or whatever it is. And we would say, oh, okay, someone says there's a problem with this verse or someone said this fact is doubtful. So I'm off the hook. I don't have to believe. I'm not responsible to the God of the universe, right? And I would say that's a lazy kind of skepticism. That's the kind of skepticism where you say, I have a question or I have a conflict or I have a doubt, therefore I just get to put the whole thing aside. I would say, do your homework and follow up, investigate, dig deeper. Um, when I became a believer, I was overwhelmed as a young man by the reality of the gospel, the gospel story that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That won my heart and began following Jesus um, and as I started following Jesus, I began reading this book, really just devouring it, studying it, wanting to know more about Jesus. And, and as I went through this, I started having questions. I'm sure this happens to you. You read stuff and you're like, well, that, well, that seems weird. Or I don't know if that matches that other chapter I read. You know, and you have questions you want to ask. Um, and the more I would dig and the more I would look for answers, the more I found there are decent answers out there. And I really want to encourage you that, that if you look, you can find answers. And we shouldn't use our questions or our skepticism as an excuse to just not look. C.S. Lewis talks about this kind of skepticism in the book, I believe it's The Abolition of Man. Y'all can correct me afterwards if you're not sure, but I think this is in The Abolition of Man. I, I wrote down the quote, and it's this, that 
There are a lot of people that are always seeing through things. It's a kind of skepticism where you're always seeing through things. And he says, the purpose of seeing through something is to see something on the other side. The purpose of seeing through something is to see something on the other side. But a lot of times in our skepticism, we're just like, I'm cool, I see through everything, right? Like I'm too cool to believe in that and I'm too cool to believe in, in this other thing. Well, it says, no, the whole point is to find truth. So we ask questions, we pursue truth so we can find truth. And I just want to encourage you that this, this book, these stories can, can hold up to your questions. And it's really helpful to, to keep looking. I grabbed a picture here of a magnifying glass to just get us thinking of the idea of, of going deeper, of studying, of investigating, um, kind of a Sherlock Holmes mystery type concept. Uh, we're going to offer, we're going to continue to offer lots of ways for you to learn this big book, to understand it, to understand how it's arranged, to understand what it says, to understand um, and answer the questions you might have about it. I meant to bring one of my commentaries in here. I've got a, a commentary on just, just the Gospel of Luke. And it's uh, two volumes, and it's uh, 2,000 pages. It's like a 1,000-page volume and another 1,000-page volume. And that's just my favorite commentary, right? I have several other commentaries as well. Uh, and in that, it's got lots of details on the little questions that people have about history and the people have about the different you know, literary and linguistic issues we have with the text. There's just so much out there. I would love to help you find the relevant information you're looking for, right? Like, I know you don't want to... I haven't read the whole 1,000-page book, right? It's a reference book. But... I know for you, you might think, oh, that's too much. I, I, don't, I don't have time to go there. Man, let me help you. If you have questions, I would love to help you find answers to those questions. That's one of the things I love to do. That's one of the resources um, that I'm able to give in your journey of trying to investigate the truths of Christianity. So I want to help you in that journey. So just to kind of follow up, God's love is historical. It's, it's something that comes in space and time. It's something that happened. It's something that we have historical evidence of, journalistic reporting of. So because of that, we can study it. Because of that, we can read more about it. Because of that, we can get to know it more. And then here's kind of a related idea. The, the truth of the gospel is historical. And then as believers, we do things to celebrate it, right? When we gather to worship, we're celebrating the truths of the Jesus story. So what we do at Christmas time. And there's this concept in the Old Testament, uh, it comes up in one of our old hymns, it says, I will raise my Ebenezer, have you all heard the word Ebenezer? It's not just an old man's name, uh, but it means like a stone of remembrance in the Old Testament. So they would stack stones, think of like memorials, right? Like how we make like a marble plaque for something to remember something important. So they would stack stones to remember great things that God had done. So basically, they took effort to build something to help them remember God's faithfulness to them. And I would say that's a great principle that all believers should be practicing. And I just want to encourage that as an application, a big picture application in your life. Are you practicing ways of remembering Jesus' faithfulness to you? Remembering God's faithfulness to you? That's basically what all Christian traditions are supposed to be. And I'm going to go into my kind of two extremes thing again here with Christian tradition. One extreme is we make tradition to be authoritative in and of itself which is not what it's for, right? Tradition is a carrier. It's an Ebenezer. It's a form we've built and maybe passed on to our children and our children's children. It's a form we've created to remember God. That's what a tradition should be. We could go to the other extreme and just, you know, totally throw off, tr be totally anti-traditional. The problem with that is you're fooling, you're lying to yourself because we all have traditions, right? Like we all practice traditions. We can just think we're cool and non-traditional about it. You know, that's fine. 
but we've all got some kind of form. So let's just be self-conscious about the forms that we're practicing. So like with Christmas as an example, uh, to be clear, the Bible doesn't say to have, you know, little candles to remember Jesus' birth. The Bible doesn't say to do Christmas trees to remember Jesus' birth. These are all things that have developed over history, different people, different families. They're just stuff people have come up with. They're ways for us to have a party to remember Jesus. That's really all it is. So when the church says, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're not saying this is something the Bible says you have to do, right? Like you don't have to have a Christmas tree, but you've got to do something, okay? You've got to do something to remember Jesus and to celebrate his goodness in your life. So I would say that's, that's the level to which every Christian has been deputized. Uh, uh, like you don't have to celebrate whatever holidays you don't want to celebrate, right? You don't have to do all the things your Christian friends do, but you need to remember Jesus. You, remember, you need to celebrate. You need to build stones, right? That's metaphorical. You don't have to use stones. Um, but you need to do something to remember what God has done to you and done for you. A, a lot of people do this through journaling. Any of y'all journal? You're just like writing down, remembering things on paper, talking about things. There's a lot of different ways to do this, but I would say we need to always be conscious of this. We, we need to use forms as a tool to remember Jesus. That, that's the important thing, that we're remembering him in the history of what he's done for us. Okay, next point is God's love comes before you. God's love comes before you. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. It says in verse 4, 5, and 6, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him, was pregnant while they were there. The time came for her to give birth. So uh, we have some geography stuff here. A <coughs> um, couple of details. Uh, one detail I'll come back around to later, and that is that uh, Joseph and the family was coming up from Nazareth and Galilee. Uh, just a, a minor detail. Whenever I hear up in the Bible, I always think going south to north, because we think of up on a map, right? Uh, but they mean lowland to highland. That's, that's why they say up when they say going up to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem, which is a suburb of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was up on a plateau, right? So it's also called Mount Zion. So it's this raised area where the city of God was. And so you'll see that a lot in, in geography. You'll see this going up to Jerusalem language or going up to Judea, which was up on a, a mountain range or a plateau area. And also Nazareth and the Galilee area was like a rough part of town. Well, not part of town, rough part of Israel, Okay. Um, so this was a less holy area. This was a less Jewish area. It was more mixed religiously, more mixed racially. Um, kind of think about, this is really rough comparison, but sometimes people talk about the Bible Belt, you know, where there are more people that love Jesus and then other places where there's not, not as many Christians or whatever. You could kind of think about it like that, right? Jerusalem and Bethlehem were the center of their worship. And so there were a lot of very religious people, very devoted people there. And then the farther out, the farther out rings in Israel, you just had all kinds of people that were, you know, mixed and had different interests and different hobbies. So Jesus and his family, after he's born in Bethlehem, moved back to Nazareth, Galilee area, and this was a kind of outskirts area, right? This was kind of backcountry. It wasn't the big city, and it wasn't the religious place that Jerusalem was. So that's just an interesting thing to note. Um, but here we see that prophecies are lining up with the historical decrees of Caesar, Quirinius, these people in charge, so that Joseph had to leave their town and, and go to this other place where he normally wouldn't have been, Bethlehem, the city of David, so the prophecies could be fulfilled. And this all points to this idea that 
God had made these prophecies and promises that came along long before anybody else showed up. So the concept is that God's love precedes you. God's love comes before you. God's love isn't contingent on you, right? A lot of times we think, well, if I could just clean myself up a little bit more, then God would love me. And I just really want to encourage you that God loves you because God is a God of love. That's what he says about Israel in Deuteronomy. He says, I love you because I love you. I chose you because you were small, right? I didn't choose you because you're so impressive. And it's the same kind of thing we see here in the life of Jesus His birth, his coming onto the scene was something God had been planning for a long time. This is a fulfillment of the prophecies made to David, that David would have a descendant that would rule forever, right? That's a promise that was made to David. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, God made a promise to the serpent and to Eve that someday there would be a descendant of Eve. There would be a human that would be born, that would crush evil, that would crush the serpent. So there are all these promises in the Old Testament that God's love was at work before we ever showed up on the scene. Another interesting illustration of this is, um, I don't know if you've ever like found an old picture of your grandparents or your folks and you realized like, oh no, they used to be young and good looking, right? Like has that ever happened to you and you're really shocked? Like my parents used to be young and good looking. Have you ever thought that? Okay, well it was shocking to me when I first figured that out. Here's an old picture of a couple at the beach in the uh, 40s or 50s and uh, it's just amazing to think, because here's another way of thinking about it. You might just think about like, like my folks split up when I was five, right? So it's easy to think, I come from like divorce and chaos and conflict, right? But that's really not, that's not the whole story. That's, there, was, there was love before that, and there was love before that, and there was love before that. I guess that's, that's kind of the illustration I'm trying to press you towards is, is we can focus on just the conflict we know or just even the bad thing that happened today. But if you have a biblical perspective, you recognize, you know what, the God of the universe, the Trinity, has existed in perfect love for all eternity. And God didn't create you because he was lonely. God created you out of the overflow of his love. That's what systematic theology teaches us, right? We, we take all these different verses. We look at everything the Bible says. You can even look at the statements that, that Jesus talks about in John 17 where he's talking to the Father about the perfect love they've had together. We put all these things together. We piece these things together and we go, wow, God has existed forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always had this community of love. That's one of the marked, unique things about Christianity that sets it apart from every other religion. We, we, we come from this love. I, I was taught as a very little kid. I think because I'm a theological nerd, I remember these weird things from like five-year-old Sunday school, but I can remember being taught that. Some of you have been taught, I had a parent come up and go, oh yeah, I just told my kid that last week, that, that God created us because he was lonely. Have you ever heard that before? God didn't create you because he was lonely. God created you out of an overflow. Of, there was just like this overflowing grace, this overflowing love, and he just wanted more, and he wanted to give more, and that's, that's where we came from. And so I think that's really important to remember because, again, we can think that God's love for us is contingent on how well we're doing or how well we've done or the voices in our head of what other people have said about us, how well you've been treated, how much you've been abused or not been abused, and that determines whether or not you're really loved. And the story is, no, there's, there's this love that precedes all of that. There's this love that comes before that. And we see that in the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament. Micah 5.2 is one of them that's fulfilled about Bethlehem, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. There's just one prophecy I'll read to you, Micah 5.2. It says, Bethlehem, 
Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. This is one of many promises made. A few weeks ago, Tim Cartwright preached on the crucifixion, and he talked about all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the crucifixion. We see a lot of the same things at Christmas time. There are all these prophecies being fulfilled, all these promises that are now coming true, all these plans that God has been making for thousands and thousands of years that are now coming to life in the birth of Jesus. So, so number one, don't think that your bad day means that God doesn't love you. Don't think that the abuse from your childhood means that God doesn't love you. Don't think that a bad relationship of your parents or the brokenness you come from means that God doesn't love you, but look back farther. Keep looking back farther. I think a a secondary application of this is just beginning to learn and love the Old Testament. It's two-thirds of our Bible. Um, Everything that we have in Jesus is promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Um, And so on the one hand, we have to recognize we're modern people, and a lot of it's hard to understand. A lot of it, frankly, to modern people is offensive, right? Uh, We're very narrow-minded 21st century people, right? We're easily offended. We're touchy. Um, And when we read these Old Testament documents, when we read these ancient manuscripts, some some of it freaks us out, right? So just recognize, we have to just recognize that, be honest about that. But I would say read these documents. And when you have questions, ask your questions. Again, I'd love to help you with that. Any of the other pastors here would love to help you with the questions you would have about it, the weird things, the scary things you come across. But look for this theme as you read through the Old Testament. Look for the theme of a God who, although he's disappointed and frustrated with the sin and rebellion of mankind, continues to pursue us in love, continues to chase after us in love, continues to say, I'm going to show grace to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to fix this mess that I didn't create, but we created, right? But God says, I'm, I'm going to fix this mess, and I'm going to come after you, and I'm going to love you. And so I just encourage you to read your Old Testament with that in mind. Again, don't, don't turn a blind eye. Like I said earlier, ask questions, dig deeper, study. When you have, have weird things you come across, follow up on that, look into it more. But look for this, this theme, that God's love comes before us. Um, last point, God's love sympathizes with us. God's love sympathizes with us. Verse 7, he says this, then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The other translations say she swaddled him or wrapped him in swaddling cloth. Uh, This new translation I'm reading says wrapped him tightly, which is what swaddle means, if you didn't know that. Um, Swaddling is what we used to call with our babies a baby burrito. I don't know what you call it in your family. Um, but a baby, this is, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how baby, not too much, but a little bit of how babies work. Uh, babies, when they're in their mother's tummy, they're all like, like tight, right? So then when they're born, they're, of course, freaked out. They're like, oh, no, too much space, and there's anxiety there, right? And so you have to wrap them up tightly. That's just like a normal thing everybody does. They, you wrap your baby up real tight when you have a newborn baby, and it just makes them feel like, oh, okay, everything's okay now, right? They're in the little straight jacket, and they feel better. They feel more happy. That's just what you do with babies. And I just want you to think about this for a second. This is so profound and so easy to miss. The God of the universe took on flesh and needed to be wrapped up and made to feel secure. Isn't that amazing? He was at the mercy of these peasants in first century Judea who couldn't even afford a proper place to stay, right? He was 
born in, he was placed in a manger. Think about that. Any of you people here germ freaks, right? Think about laying a baby in a manger. You might do this for a third born or a fourth born, but your first child, right? You're not going to do that with your first child. You're going you're gonna to make a clean bed for your first child. This was a hard situation to be in. In Mari's sermon last week, we saw when he was presented at the temple, it talked about the, the law talks about offerings that are made for a firstborn, and there are special offerings that the poor offer, that's the turtle dove and the pigeon, rather than the larger animal. So this is a poor family. They made the, the poor person offering in the temple. We see that later on in chapter two. So this is a poor family, it's number one, but also, more than that, it was a human family, right? This is the God of the universe born as a human. Christmas is such a great time to meditate on that reality. We have a God who can sympathize with us because he's a human. So a little theology for you here. Christians, all traditional, historic, orthodox Christians believe that God is both fully human and fully God. Did I say God? Jesus. That Jesus is both fully God and fully human, okay? That's hard to put together, right? But that's what we believe he's revealed himself to be. We don't believe that because it's like this thing we see every day, right? It's this very unusual thing, but that's what we see him to reveal himself to be in the scriptures. And so that's what Christians have come up with. He's, he's totally God, and he's totally human, both at the same time. It's historic Christian orthodoxy. But we live in a place in history where most of the really strong, growing cults right now emphasize the humanity of Jesus or the less-than divinity of Jesus. And so what happens is orthodox churches that preach the Bible um, tend to posture ourselves more on the divinity of Christ. That's what we talk about the most. And so we just kind of recognize we're in a place in history where we focus more on his divinity, which is true. He's both, right? He's both divine and human. He's human and divine. He's God and he's a person. But we need to slow down and say, but he's also human, right? We need to just meditate on this. a beautiful thing, and Christmas is the perfect time to do that. Christmas is when we're celebrating the incarnation, that God took on flesh. He was born as a baby. A couple of resources that are helpful. One is a book called Delighting in the Trinity, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, and I recommend that to you. If you've ever wanted to just kind of study more Trinitarian theology, it can be hard stuff, but the book is written really well. It's very approachable. Actually, one of our members recommended it to me a couple of years ago, and I bought it, and I've loved it, passed it on to our worship pastor, uh, Chris Webster, he's been enjoying it. It's a really great book. So it's kind of got a devotional style, sense of humor. It's not super hard to understand, but it's explaining these basics of the idea of a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the reality of who Jesus is. Um, and so I think that's a great resource uh, for you. There's also another book called The Person of Christ by Donald McLeod. It's much more complex and difficult, but if you're kind of wanting something more complex and difficult, that would be one that you could enjoy. So Jesus is both fully God, and he's also fully man, and Christmas time is the time when we think about Jesus was a man. He, he was a person, not just a, a man and a person, but a baby, right? He was born as a baby, and my wife was just reading a great poem to me by Lucy Shaw. You could probably Google Lucy Shaw. I think it's called Mary's Song. It's just one of these many things that we see at Christmas time of thinking about what was it like for him to be a little baby. They're just great meditations that you can find at Christmas time on these things. Um, here's a picture I have of a rough neighborhood. Um, I don't know where you grew up. I grew up, my neighborhood wasn't that rough, but my childhood was kind of rough. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, like it was a nice house we lived in, but it was kind of a hard way to grow up. I don't know about you, but there can be a lot of like hard things in your past 
that can be things you don't really want to remember. Um, and in Jesus, we have someone who uh, suffered like we've suffered. Uh, we have someone who went through hard things like the kind of hard things that you and I have gone through. Um, and that enables him to sympathize with us. That's one of the most beautiful, beautiful things about Christianity. We have a God who suffered. We have a God who was abused. We have a God who hurt with us. That's amazing. A lot of people talk about Christmas time in the context of like he moved into our neighborhood, right? Like imagine you live in a really rough neighborhood and the richest person in the world says, hey, I just want to move in next door to be your buddy, right? And it's like, oh, Christ. Hebrews describes it. It does that pales in comparison to what God did in the life of Christ. Hebrews describes it this way in Hebrews 4, 14, 15, and 16. So this is in Hebrews chapter 4. It's a long letter in the New Testament to Hebrew Christians. Hebrews 4, 14 emphasizes the, the godness of Jesus. It says, Therefore, since we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So he starts off with the divinity of Christ. We've got this great high priest. He's, he's passed through the heavens. He's the Son of God. Because of that, hold on. Hold on to your confession of faith. And then in 15, he tacks the other way. And he says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He says, you, you have a high priest in Jesus who can sympathize with you in every way. He, he understands your weaknesses. So again, remember, we often run so fast and so quickly to the divinity of Christ that we don't stop to meditate on the reality that he lived with every weakness that you live with. He lived with the temptations and the tests and the trials and the hurts and the pains and the suffering that you've lived with. He understands. We have a God who understands our pain. I think that's a beautiful thing. He understands. And so then the author of Hebrews goes on and says, um, well, first of all, just to clarify, he's been tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin, right? So, so he was without sin. But again, don't jump too quickly there because we often think, yeah, he was God, so he cheated, right? Like that, I mean, in reality, that's how we think about it. But the way that the New Testament's written, the way that we see him presented in the gospel, he's, he's not cheating, right? Like he's, just, he's a human the way humans were supposed to be. He's, he's the kind of person we were supposed to be. Verse 16 in Hebrews says this, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So he's the son of God that's passed through the heavens. Cool, check. He's also a human that can sympathize with you in every way. So what do we do with those two truths? We run with boldness to his throne. We run to him. Now that's, that's faith, right? You can just think about that as, okay, I'm a believer. I, I'm running to him for forgiveness, for faith. But more important than that, it's a, it's a lifestyle of just running to him every day, in, in every moment, in every hard situation, in every I'm not sure what to do, in every stress, in every temptation, we run to him. We run to him for grace. We run to him for help. One more little theological fact, and then, and then we'll wrap up. Double imputation is a, is a theological way of saying that um, there's, there's two things that are substituted or imputed by faith in Christ. One that we talk about a lot is our sin is imputed to Jesus on the cross, meaning uh, our sin is nailed to the cross with Christ. So, so what that means is you're truly forgiven. We talk about that a lot, a lot of songs we sing, uh, bring that up, and that's one of the beautiful central truths of Christianity. Our sins are forgiven and nailed to the cross with Christ. 
So when Jesus looks at you, he's no longer, you know, holding your sin over you, but he sees you as forgiven. There's more than that, though. He, he also rose from the dead, which promises, guarantees his victory over sin and death and our victory over sin and death, right? It, it proves that, that we can move beyond death. But there's also this idea of the imputation of his perfect life. And so there's this beauty of his life, of him being the person we were supposed to be so that um, that is imputed to us by faith so that when we trust in Jesus, um, Jesus' life covers us. And in a lot of places in the New Testament, it says we are in Christ or hidden in him. He is your robe of righteousness. So what that means is that when, when God looks at you, if you trust in Jesus, he sees you as delightful as Jesus himself. God sees you as perfect, as whole, as complete in Christ. That is, that is amazing news. That is good news. So because of these truths, this double imputation, we, we run to the throne of grace. We run to Christ. We run to God knowing that he sympathizes, that he understands, that he's been there, that he, that he gets it. And that's one of the beautiful things we can remember at Christmas time: The closeness, the earthiness, the, the humanness of our God. I'll wrap up with 1 John 4. It's the one that I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning that, that says, we know that God loves us because he sent Jesus into the world. And he goes on and keeps on with that argument. He says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for us. Which is really interesting because in 1 John, this, this little letter, he, he talks a lot about how we should love God, right? If you don't love God, you've got a problem. If you don't love your neighbor, you've got a problem. You should be loving your brother and sister. Um, we need to love each other. But here he says, but that's not really love. What really is love? This is love. Not that you love God, but that he loved you. And I just want you to start there at Christmas time and remember as we celebrate this time of year, we can get caught up and distracted by all the craziness, right? I went to the store, two stores yesterday, and, and felt a little angry and disturbed about it, right? Because it's just, there's too many cars, right? <laughs> like, what's going on? Um, remember this. This is love. Not how well you love God, not how well you love your neighbor, but that he loved you first. And when you get that foundation built, that's what enables you to love others. First John 4.19 says we, we love because he first loved us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you loved us in Christ, and we thank you for this amazing story that is, um, in some ways, it seems so old. We've heard this in Christmas songs. We've seen this talked about before, but it is so new and so amazing that you would love us in this way. Thank you for sending Jesus for us. We pray that you would renew our minds in this reality, that we would be built up. I pray for my friends that aren't sure, that still have questions, that you give them open minds of faith. Pray for those of us that are already committed to you, Lord, that you could rebuild our commitment, that you could stir the fire of our faith and help us to trust you even more. Remember that you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.